all over the globe confirming it as true. To say that the world is in a state of shock this morning would be to understate the situation. The event seems to have taken place at the same time all over the world just about 25 minutes ago. Suddenly and without warning, literally thousands, perhaps millions of people just disappeared. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. There's no time to change your mind. How could you have been so blind? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> by show of hands, how many of you have any idea what that footage is from? Thank you. Thank you. There's a three, three or four people a little old enough to remember. Okay, so there, <laughs> there was a Christian evangelistic movie uh, put out in 1972 called A Thief in the Night. We stole all the imagery and the footage from it. And, um, and so... <laughs> <laughs> for this series, A Thief in the Night. And uh, you have to understand, uh, I, we had gotten saved, you know, at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, become a Christian. And uh, A Thief in the Night, then they had like a Left Behind. They had these movies that they put out like this. And um, so as I was preparing, we wanted to do an end times teaching for you guys for these next three weeks. And as we were preparing, I went back to my early Christianity, uh, you know, imagery. And, um, and I kept hearing, you've been left behind. And so I was like, Pastor Jonathan, find this footage for me. We're going to use that. And you got to understand, he's a different generation. <clears throat> and he's like, what is this? This is creepy. And, uh, and I had to tell him, yeah, dude, the 70s were creepy. I just want to bring that out for all you young millennials. The 70s aren't as sexy as you think they were. They were creepy. And it, um, in, the, in the 70s, what happened was, um, because of this, these set of video series, as well as in 1988, a guy wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88. It permeated the Christian community. It went all over the United States. And most churches were pretty, if not convinced, pretty much at least on edge that Jesus was going to come back in 1988. Well, then he didn't. So the guy rewrote the book because he said, well, I missed it by a year based on the Jewish calendar. Sorry. So he's going to come back in 1989. Well, he didn't come back in 89 either. So by that point, you know, we're like, hey, dude, you're an idiot. But it set something into motion. Uh, for me, uh, when, those, when that book came out, I was, in, I was uh, in university. So I basically, our church said, you know, whether Jesus comes back or not in 1988, 89, for sure, the times are starting to wrap up. And we need to do our best to bring in the harvest because Jesus would that none would be left behind. He wants all men to know the Father. And so, we, so I, quit, I quit college. I went to Bible school, went into the ministry. We did missions work around the world, really motivated by our eschatology, our belief in what was going to happen in the end times or how we read the end times pieces. And in fact, let me just help you a little bit. When it comes to Scripture, one out of eight, uh, 30 verses in the New Testament talk about the end or the return of Jesus. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament actually refer to the end times or the return of Christ. So it's an important topic. The problem I have with the topic is that there's so many opinions. 
And there's, it's really subjective, uh, subjective because the prophecies in the Scripture, they are just that. They are prophecies. They are alluding to things that are yet to come. They are pieces that are being foreseen by people who are seeing visions, like the book of Revelation and others, and trying to describe what they're seeing some hundreds, thousands of years later. And so what happens is we find these teachers of the word on these tangents and everyone seems to have somewhat of a different viewpoint and so I want to talk a little bit about end times but my goal in teaching you the next three weeks about end times is not to talk about all of the different pieces and how they might mean this and 666 might mean this and this over here might mean this but actually to take the teaching that's there present and what are the life lessons that Jesus is trying to teach us through these scriptures. We find in these end-time teachings, we find them cultivated in four major places in the New Testament. We'll look at the New Testament teachings. We find them in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, which we're going to study today. We find them in the Thessalonians, both 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We find them as well in Peter, both 1 and 2 in Peter. And then we find them in the book of Revelations. So for the next three weeks, we're going to actually look at the three of the four. We're going to look at Matthew 24 today. We'll look at Thessalonians next week. And then we'll look at Revelation the following week because Revelation and 1 Peter are real similar in what they're trying to accomplish and what the life lessons are trying to be. So to do all that, if you would bear with me, it's going to be five minutes of sheer frustration for all the high I's and the high D's in the room. And for all the baby Christians, like, why? And then it's going to be sheer frustration for the next three to four minutes for those of you that are scholarly and have studied every one of post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-millennial, and all that kind of stuff. But if you'll bear with me, I want to lay a foundation, at least on some of the verbiage that maybe you've heard people podcasting about, and you flip through the channels in Christian television, you're like... Okay, and you kept going. I want to at least lay some foundational pieces so you can at least have a little bit of premise from which to build from. So there are four major concepts when it comes to what's going to happen in the end. Now, most everybody believes in a couple scenarios that are laid out in Scripture. That there's going to be some type of second coming of Jesus... Most everybody agrees with that, the way the scripture talks about that. Most everyone believes that there's some type of tribulation. The book of Revelation talks about seven years of tribulation. And then most everyone agrees with a millennial reign of some sort, where Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years, bring everyone under his rulership, do away with all the wickedness, and then, and then it's going to rule for a thousand years. And then at the end of that, the final judgment, the separation of the sheep from the goat, and, uh, and all those pieces will happen at the final judgment, and there'll be, um, there'll be, you know, the Satan will be locked in the pit of hell forever kind of thing. And so some Somewhere in between that is the battle of Armageddon. There's all these pieces, you know, the, the, you know, the bowls of wrath being opened and those kind of things. So if I could, I want to kind of teach you the four pre- prevailing thoughts that most people are back and forth on, how they see the end times and the pieces all lining up. So let's put the kind of the chart on the screen. We'll start with the top piece. Uh, it started with post-trib because... Um, that's the only chart I could find. And so, starting with post-trip, so you'll notice the cross on your left, my right. You'll notice the cross. So, so, so most all of us believe Jesus came and died. Would you agree with that? Yes. There you go. That did happen. So the cross is kind of the starting point of the church, the New Testament church, the church being birth, if you will, followers of Jesus. He resurrected, he ascended into heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts. We see this whole season of the New Testament church. And so from that point till really what is the tribulation, most everyone considers that the church age as the church is just being the church in the earth. 
And then there will be this tribulation that happens. So these things that are prophesied in the, in the book of Revelation, the outpouring of the bowls of wrath, the trumpets, all these different pieces. And again, I'm not going to get into all the details of all the little pieces because I want to get to what was Jesus trying to tell us. Not all the details of why and how and where, but actually all that, if you put all that in the Bible, what was he trying to help us with right now in our daily life? How can I apply this? What does this have to anything to do with me having soccer practice tomorrow with the kids? How do I apply the, the words to my daily life and actually find the truths that he was trying to bring out? So then there'll be this tribulation about seven years, okay? And, so, and, and then at, at the end of the tribulation, there'll be a millennial reign. Jesus will come back and he will, he, he, he will have the battle of Armageddon. He will destroy all the wicked ones that fought against him and he'll set up a, a thousand year reign. So post-tribulations uh, or post-tribu, how people call it post-trib, and pre-millennial. So those guys believe, they believe that there, this tribulation, that we as Christians will go through this tribulation. That we will go through these bowls of wrath. That we will go through the, you know, uh, some of you, you know, remember the old movies, the pale horse, the pale horse rider, and the, and the such and sorts, and the black horse to bring disease and all this kind of stuff. So that we will actually, as Christians, we will go through that. Compare that to the second, the pink level, the pre-trib say, no, 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 no. The believers will be raptured away. The word rapture is never in scripture. It talks about a taking away. And we will meet him in the air. And, uh, and, and so the, the pre-tribbers believe, no, no, before the, the tribulation happens, all the solid, sold-out Christians will be raptured away and will not go through the tribulation. The post-tribbers say, no, 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 we will, but we're also post-trib, but we're, but, um, we're post-trib, but we're pre-millennial. So Jesus will take us away at the end of the tribulation. Why? Because we have to be light in the darkness and all that horrible stuff is going to be happening, but we will be encapsulated like Noah was in the ark and though destruction was on the earth, those of us that are post-trib believe that we will be protected and encapsulated. So while everybody else is dying, we will not be. God's favor will rest upon us, pointing back to himself that he has, he has a representation in the earth. That's what post-tribbers would believe. And then they would believe that then at the end of the tribulation, there would be a, a rapturing away. It's how most of them believe. And again, there's some diversions on that. Well, I don't, I don't believe in the rapture. Well, I believe. And so, so it will blow your mind. I'm telling you, I've been spending weeks on this thing and just refreshing my, like, wow. And so then what happens at the end of that, the post-tribbers then believe, obviously, the millennial reign will come back and, and reign with him. Okay, and post-tribbers, you'll find a lot of different organizations, uh, uh, the, the, like the, the House of Prayer guys, they're pretty much post-tribbers, and they're actually praying the bowls of wrath to come so that we can get this thing sped up. You know, they're, they're, and, and that's a summary, and they would say I misrepresented them, but nonetheless. So you see that group of guys, and there's some others, uh, some of the fresh reformers may think something like that, you know, just, you know, we're going to grit it and then, then the second line is the pre-trib dispensationalists or the pre-millennial. Uh, and so what the pre-tribs believe is that before this great, horrible outpouring and all this tribulation will be whisked away, as I said earlier. And you find the Southern Baptists, the Assemblies of God, uh, most of the mainstream denominations, they'll kind of fall in the pre-trib camp and then they'll have diversions. Well, yeah, this and that and the other. And so they'll believe that, that before the tribulation will be taken up, the earth will go through the tribulation, and then what will happen is and the peoples of the earth will go through the tribulation, and then Jesus will come back to fight the battle of Armageddon right at the end of the tribulation. We will come with him riding on horses as well, but before we get to the battle, Jesus already killed everybody, and it's already over, and we're like, okay, whatever, mop it up, let's go. And then what will happen is Jesus set up his throne, and there will be a thousand-year reign, 
and that, uh, and that we, as his sons and daughters that had been extracted be- be- before the great tribulation, we will co-reign with him on the earth. And so I'm bidding for uh, Hawaii. I would like to be the governor of Hawaii during that thousand years. And because uh, Lord knows I need some rest after all the stuff y'all put me through as your pastor. Anyway, so I- I'm just kidding. By the way, all the new people are like, what? And so, and so, and then of course, the, and then at the end of the millennial, then there'll be the shutdown of everything and the new heaven and new earth and pass away and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So I'm just high, quickly covering. Then there's a third group of people that are post-millennials. It's kind of the, the group that kind of falls into play here. The post-millennials, uh, you'll, you'll find like the Bethel group for all you guys that are in the Bethel worship. These guys probably fall most under post-millennial. And a lot of the prophet, prophetic voices that you see on television and Christian television stuff will probably fall right here. And what they believe is, you know what? <clears throat> There will be a millennial reign, but the tribulation is basically what we're going through now. Life sucks. I mean, it's just hard. And so it's just difficult, and that's just pretty much, it's just bad. We're going through bad stuff, and that's just life. But what will happen is, because the Holy Spirit lives and abides in us, we, the believer, will rise up, and there will be revival in the earth to the place where there, the Christians take over everything. Not because we're trying to take over. Uh, Bill Johnson, actually, I heard him say, look, not that we take over so that we can reign and rule, but like sheep, like Jesus was a lamb to the slaughter, that we go and we serve. And as we serve, the nature of Christ that's in us begins to affect the people that we're serving. And then Christianity just begins to expand and explode to where Christianity becomes the prevail. It, there, uh, uh, the whole world becomes Christian. And for a thousand years years, Christ in us, the hope of glory, reigns for a thousand years as the, whole na- uh, the nations of the world become Christian. And, and that's their belief system. And then at the end of that, at the end of the millennial, then there'll be the last judgment and it'll all just go away and, and we'll be ushered into heaven forever and ever and ever or, you know, whatever to hell. And so that's kind of their belief system. And all those are beautiful, right? And you, we all can go, yeah, 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 I, be- I like that. I, ooh, I like that one too. And so to my point, there's so many opinions, and it is an ethereal piece. It's not as clear as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. There are these prophetic pieces that are out there, uh, excuse me, that are in Scripture, excuse me, and, the, and people out there are trying their best to try to, uh, how they see it. Well, and it's really fun to watch the intellectuals or argue over it. Well, you know, I've studied Rabbi so-and-so, and I've studied so-and-so and such-and-such, and actually the Greek and original Latin even in this, and then over here in the original Aramaic meant this, and in the blood moons, and blah, 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 blah. It's really fun to watch them. But at the end of the day, how do I live out my life on this earth, man? I live in Cedar Hill. That's awesome, but... I just want to be like Jesus. What is Jesus trying to say? Why would he put all that in scripture if we're going to sit around arguing? There's so much more to this thing that I think we, get, we miss because we get caught up arguing about which one, which one we like. That's why there's 31 flavors. Right? Because not everybody likes vanilla. Not everybody likes chocolate. Some of you guys like that weird sherbet mixed with chocolate chip stuff. Because that's how God made you, right? And so, and so it's beautiful to watch all the personalities kind of go back and forth. And the last one is what we call amillennialist. A- and what they basically believe is the whole thing's symbolic. That all those prophecies in the book of Daniel, all the, the book of Revelation, it's all symbolic. That it's not a literal happen thing. There's not going to actually be a seven-year tribulation. There's not actually going to be, you know, the two prophets, and they're going to get everybody saved, and then they're going to be killed, and they're going to be raised from there. It's not actually antichrist. It's just an antichrist spirit in the earth. And so, and so there's some merit in all these pieces, and they believe that just simply there'll be a second coming. Jesus will come back, and then boom, bang, boom, it's all over when he comes back. There won't be this millennial reign and all this kind of stuff. So, so a lot of preachers won't even tell you where they stand. 
saying that because they don't want to offend a particular group in the church. But we're all family, and I embrace the fact that we all have different opinions. My Lord, we're, we're a multiracial church. We're a multigenerational church. If we all have the same opinion, somebody's not needed, right? That's what, that's what, that's what, what Billy Graham's wife said. We're two always agree, one's not needed. And so I embrace the fact that you might see it a little different. I think that makes me better. And I think that makes you better. And so, but my personal belief is this. There's a passage of scripture, we'll cover it even today, that no matter where it all falls, put, this, put it back on the screen for me, no matter where it all falls, this I do know. Jesus will not pour out his wrath on us as believers. It will not happen. The word's very clear, that the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus Christ. And as Christians, there will never be a, a wrath poured out on us. It was poured out on Jesus for us. And so because of that, I might would fall somewhere in a mid-trib. I might would fall somewhere. I would call myself, pre, uh, I would call myself pre-wrath. I don't know where his wrath is. So is the tribulation wrath or is that just persecution? It, 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 is, the tri- is the bowls of wrath happening in the, in, the, in, the thir- in the second part of the tribulation or in the first? Is there a rapture? Is there multiple raptures happening? I've got a close friend who's really, really, really good at this kind of stuff. And he really, he really believes that there will be multiple raptures. And in fact, he believes that when it talks about in Matthew chapter 25, the ten versions, five were ready, five were not. Five were ushered into the banquet, five were not ready. But yet, virgins represent Christians, represent those who are right with the Lord. And so what happens with these virgins? They didn't get to come in, the five that weren't ready. He believes actually that God, for those of us who have raised up our kids in the Lord and they walked away from God, then all of a sudden we get raptured away, that somewhere in the three and a half years of that tribulation, that there'll be another rapture happening and that those kids who are like, I didn't, I missed it, I'm so sorry, and they make it right with God, that they'll be raptured away in a second type or a, he calls it, you know, five or six types of raptures. He connects them all to these different. I love all of it. It's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's great. But at the end of the day, I just want to serve Jesus. What was Jesus trying to tell me in these scriptures that I can apply to my life today? Because he's always teaching in his word is always applicable to what I'm going through today. So what we're going to dig out in this passage in Matthew chapter 24 is not, you know, arguing about is, are we pre-trib, post-trib? What was he trying? He, he laid all that out. But he was trying to get to a point for something to apply to my daily life. So let's look in that today. We're going to dive into Matthew chapter 24. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on. Matthew chapter 24. And we'll start with our key verse. And our key verse is found in verse 43. Key verse. And remember, I always give you a key scripture that kind of summarizes what we're teaching on. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 43. It says, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. Father, I pray that over the next couple moments you would help me as these great men and women's pastor to bring forth your truth. Not my truth, not my opinion, but your truth. What does your word say, O oh God? And help us to see how we can apply these teachings to our life and what you want to see uh, develop in each and every one of us. And we call it so in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go into Matthew chapter 24, because again, there are four major places in the New Testament. Matthew 24, the book of 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Revelation. We're going to jump into Matthew chapter 24 as they're talking about end times and try to find out the life lessons. And with it, I've extracted three life lessons that I see Jesus trying to get us to. I'll put them on the screens and then we'll go and break down these three life lessons. Number one, the first life lesson that Jesus is trying to get us to apply is that is let no one deceive you. The first thing he's trying to tell us is let no one deceive you. Can you put that on the screen for him? Let no one deceive you. Here it comes. We got froze up in the computer. That's because we got a 1970s image holding everything back. There we go. Let no one deceive you. The second thing that we'll see as a life lesson in this is that we need to reject apathy. 
That's his life lesson that he's given us. So he's telling us all this about the end times so that we can get these life lessons. Let no one deceive you. Number two, reject apathy. And then number three, keep watch. Keep watch. That's his three life lessons in, in Matthew chapter 24. When we come back next week and look at the Thessalonians piece, we'll find the life lessons he's trying to give to the Thessalonians. They're by, by us as well. So let's start with the first one. Let no one deceive you. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. So as he opens up this whole teaching, let's see where this all starts at. So it says in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Jesus, they said, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered. Well, how did he answer? Look what he answers with. Watch out that no one deceives you. So, so they asked, how will we know when the end is going to be here? How are we going to know when you're going to return, take us all away, destroy the earth? How are we going to know when all that? How are we going to know about all that? And he goes, let me start with this. Let no one deceive you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive. Everybody say the last word. Many. Say it with me. And will deceive many. So Jesus says, listen, you need to watch out because people are going to try to deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Continuing on, if you'll keep reading down through that, he then moves into verse 24 by saying it like this. For the false Christ, false Christ, and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if it were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So he's saying, listen, I'm telling you ahead of time. Before all of these, before there are wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, these are all going to be signs that you can tell something's happening, that the end is starting up, that this thing is the beginning of birth pains. He says, but, but just know this, just, I'm telling you this in advance before all the end time stuff starts, that you need to watch out and not be deceived. They're going to try to deceive you. They're going to say, this is Christ and this is Christ. This one's going to prophesy this and you're going to be like, that sounds great. Wow, that, that looks good. I, I, and he says, I'm warning you. Don't be deceived. There'll be many trying to deceive, even to the place where the elect will almost be deceived, if it were possible. In fact, another passage says, and even the elect will be deceived. And so I want to help you real quick. How do you and I keep from being deceived? Write these down. How to keep from being deceived when it comes to the things of God and what the Word says and these guys preaching and these gals prophesying things. Let me give you a couple of uh, litmus test points for you. Number one, do I see it in the life and teachings of Jesus? You know how you can keep from being deceived? Do I see it in the life and teachings of Jesus? Jesus is the way. Everybody say, Jesus is the way. So if I don't see it in Jesus' life, if I don't see it in his teachings, then I need to back up a little bit and go, ooh, wait a minute. Now, brother, what are you talking about? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you saying? Like, I don't see that in the life and teachings of Jesus. Well, that's because Jesus was before the second such and such of the red blue, blood, blood moon. And then the blue moon means the yellow star. And that's, see, you see this over in Isaiah. Like, okay. But Jesus, in his life and teachings. I, 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 here's your second litmus test, how to keep from being deceived. And that is, do I see it in multiple avenues of the word? Do I see it in multiple avenues of the word? And you got, you got to understand, I've been around Christianity long enough to find, there's some crazy people out there with big churches preaching some weird stuff. And it is deception. It doesn't necessarily line up with the word. They have to twist this scripture. I heard one guy, man, I had this one guy, he was celebrating, he was Bishop so-and-so. I saw him at this conference and everyone standing and clapping and putting their hands on the hip. And he began to preach and teach about how uh, that passage says the wedding bed is holy and undefiled. That in, in, your, uh, in your wedding bed, in your, in your making love bed, that's where you're to be perverted and wicked because in that engagement with your spouse, that'll actually clean it up. 
That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And if you could have saw 3,000 people... And I'm yelling at the screen, liar, liar. It's like, you took some obscure passage, twisted it all around, took it out of context and created something that's ignorant as all get out. That's not like the nature of Jesus Christ. It's not how Jesus lived on the earth. Come on, somebody. It's not a part of his teaching. And not only that, I can't even find it multiple places in scripture. You just messed that all up. There's not even any allusion to that in any, any place in Scripture. And so that's why you get all these weird, weird things. That's why there's such, a re- there's such a response to that in this hour that people are going back to what, what we call reform theology. And the reason why I was like, read the Bible, whatever it says, that's what we're going to do. And they're like, you know, move the Spirit, no, because we want the Word. Because they've seen so much foolishness in not representing the Word properly. And so you and I have to know the word. Here's the third thing that I would teach you and how not to get deceived, and that is, does it have a practical application in the life of a Christian? Now, this is good. My pastor used to say it like this. He called it the kiss method. Anybody remember? Keep it simple. Saint. Keep it simple. Saint. (laughs) Sorry, some other people said stupid. I would never say that. Um. You know, there should be a simplicity to this whole thing, right? I mean, if you've got to give of a such, I mean, it's the, it's the special offering that only by waving the branches of the olive tree will the glory come. The Isaiah 49, 13 blessing. If you'll give $49.13 on the 49th day of the, of the such and such and of such and such, you will be overly blessed. Like, what? Look, I'm just trying to pay my car note, bro. All right, so do I tithe or not? Why? Because there's not a real practical application. You see all this foolishness. And again, they have all this revelation, and it's, that's beautiful, and that's wonderful. And again, I'm not trying to dog out somebody. Actually, I am. I think that what we should do is bring it back to the real truth, because the Bible is applicable. It's applicable to my daily life. And so people are getting deceived because of these ethereal, unreachable, and what that person does is presents themselves as more intelligent or more in tune with God, and you don't have the ability to know that. Friend, can I tell you something? We don't need another high priest. We have one. His name is Jesus. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Who are these unlearned, uneducated men? But we can tell they've been with Jesus because they're kicking our butt up one side and down the other. Friend, you don't need to give into that. You read your Bible for yourself. You know your God. I am not your God. I didn't die for you. I'm your pastor. And I'm, I, all I am is the quarterback. I'm just a quarterback. We're, I'm not the coach. He throws the plays in. I do what he says to do. Come on, you with me? You have your own relationship with the coach. You have your own skill sets and your own anointing. And we work together for the cause of Christ. There has to be an order to things. And yes, I'm in charge, if you will. But friend, at the end of the day, I'm not your God. I am not the one who tells you how to do it, what to do it. He tells you that through the Holy Scriptures. There should be confirmation as we submit ourselves one to another. Come on now, that's what the Bible teaches. And we should have we should have a, a surrender uh, to, to the living God and to his holy word. And then we should serve one another. That's the teachings throughout scripture so that we don't get off and get deceived. I and mean, some of you living out there as an island by yourself, watching all these podcasts, watching all these YouTube videos. No wonder you're so screwy in your brain. You got to get, does it play out in practical everyday Christian life? You have this, uh, you're posting all the stuff, arguing, 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 but you can't keep your marriage together. Come on now, this thing should actually work. 
The gospel works in our daily life. Now that I'm not on that tangent, let's move to the third thing, second thing that he's teaching. <laughs> so let no one deceive you. The second thing that is applicable in his whole eschatology, in times teaching here, is that number two, that we should reject apathy. That we should reject apathy. Look what he says in verse 36 of the same chapter of Matthew 24. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah... So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. You understand what he's saying? He's like, they knew the end was coming. One piece of scripture calls Noah the great evangelist. He's been out telling the end is coming. God is going to judge the earth. I'm building a boat. He's been building it for a hundred years. Yet no one signed up to get in the boat. Why did they not sign up to get in the boat? Oh, oh, we got time. I'll keep living the way I've been living. Oh, and marriage and giving in marriage, eating and drinking. We're talking about just going through their daily life. And, and somehow forgot that something's coming. Jesus is clearly communicating to us that there's something coming in Matthew 24. He said, you'll know there'll be birth pains. The birth pains will look like wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famine. The end is yet to come. So he's teaching us there is an end time. There, there, you might be post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, but something's going to happen. And what he's teaching us to do is don't become apathetic. Don't become apathetic because apathy will destroy you. You will be caught with your britches down. And he said, just like in the days of Noah, they just went about their whole life. Oh, it's no big deal. Nothing's really going to happen. Oh, I just go about my daily life. I'm just going to work. I'm just going to do my job. I'll take the kids to soccer practice. Going to have date night on Friday. Going to watch my favorite shows on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. Oh, and then I got to make sure that I'm going to, you know, I got to buy some new clothes for the Cowboys. And I got this thing, 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 thing. And you're just going through your life. And you forget that there is something happening in the realm around you. And he said, don't be apathetic. Let me tell you how believers become apathetic. Let me, let me give you a couple ways on how that happens. Number one, the cause of apathy. Number one, sin in the believer's life. Sin will cause you to be apathetic. Why? Because when you and I as Christians sin, when we live in sin, when we have hidden sin, and we don't surrender to God and say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to live like this. Man, God, I don't want this sin in my life. When we won't repent of that, what happens, it creates this divide back and forth, back and forth. Why? Because if we're a Christian, the Spirit of the Lord lives inside of us. So we have the conviction. We feel, like, we feel bad. Before I was a Christian, I never felt bad about sinning. I enjoyed sin. It was awesome. I loved it. It was great. I loved, I loved every bit. I loved all the perversion. I loved stealing from you. I loved getting ahead of you. I loved dogging you out, making embarrassing you. I loved every bit of that. Then all of a sudden I became a Christian. The Spirit of the Lord came. So now all of a sudden when I went to cuss you out, I felt bad about it. Like, man, I don't feel good about that. Why? Because I'm being convicted. So the apathy comes from I'm feeling convicted, but I refuse to surrender. So back and forth, the struggle goes until one day you just say, ah, ah, it ain't worth it. So it starts... I watch it start with people like in Church on the Hill where they'll just kind of not show up at small group anymore. Then they'll just kind of come once a month to church. And then all of a sudden, you know, we don't see them anymore. And then they don't know if they believe in God anymore. And it just kind of this, it's this strategy of the enemy to get you so not caring because you refuse to fix the problem. And can I tell you how to fix the problem of sin? <laughs> it's so hard. You ready? Repent. Lord, I'm so sorry. 
I'm so sorry. Pastor, how many times should I repent? Every day. Whatever it takes until it's broken. Just keep, just keep repenting. So, oh, I messed up again. God says, oh, repent. I repent. God, I don't want this in my life. I know. Come here, son. Wow, don't do that no more. Come on. I love you. I love you. I love you. Repentance is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I'd never get that with people. They're so scared. No, I should repent, but I don't want to. It's your want to that's in the problem. That's creating the apathy. And so when you and I just say, you know what? Uh, you're better than this trash in my life. I just want you, God. The apathy turns into fuego. The moment you surrender. Surrender is a beautiful thing. I can't tell you, I fought God on tithing for years. Like, this is stupid. It's my money. It's my money, and I want it now. I mean, it's my money. You don't need it. You God, why you need my money, right? Well, that's pretty good logic, right? You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Why you need my money? And I kept reading the Bible, and every time in the Bible, God uses me to bless others. And he uses me and my surrender to forward his kingdom business. It's a principle I did not like. The moment I surrendered to it, fuego. I mean, it was unbelievable. Passion of God. I come running in the church. I got my check for this month. Woo! And God's blessings. And then, you know, difficulty would happen. And I'm like, what? I, what up to the blessing? It was this amazing journey. It's wonderful. Apathy was killed the moment I surrendered. Here's the second reason for apathy in the believer's life. Number two, and that is unchecked attitudes. Unchecked attitudes. Yeah. Well, they don't even call me for small group. They all went bowling. I didn't get a text message. So that attitude kicks in, right? That attitude kicks in. Well, Jesus, I prayed and you didn't do it, so whatever. And so that attitude kicks in. And what does that attitude do? It causes us to distance ourselves. And what does distance create? Apathy. Or whatever. You know, I, you know what I'm talking about. If she wants to know me, she's going to have to call me. I ain't calling her no more. She, you know. She wants some of this. She's going to have to make a phone call because I ain't, I ain't even. Right? That's apathy, right? Because what is apathy? Apathy is literally defined as a lack of passion, a lack of follow-through. In fact, it's interesting in my study of apathy, guess what? When you begin Googling apathy in our nation, guess what comes up the most? The tie of apathy to, ooh, I don't know, the legalization of marijuana. Is that something? Psychologists are connecting an entire generation of young people that are apathetic to the use of marijuana, stealing their desire to follow through for any passion to do anything. And I was like, hmm, is that right? Hmm. You and I must not allow apathy to catch us when that moment is there. For he will come like a thief in the night. Here's the third reason that we have apathy in our life and a believer's life or how it happens. The cause of it is never stretching Beyond the easy. Never stretching beyond the easy. I just go to church, man. Hey, I do my part. Uh, uh, you know, I'm on the welcome team. What else you want from me? Good Lord. My God, you got my money. Got my time. What else you want, preacher? So, so listen, you got to understand. Apathy is the result of always taking the easy way out. Passion is the result of new things you've never experienced before. So why do you think in this church I'm always pushing you get in a small group? Why? Because the easy way out is just, well, I go to church every now and then. It's hard to be in relationship with other Christians. It's hard. Easy way creates apathy. Listen, safety is the enemy of the supernatural. 
If you want to see the supernatural things of God, you can't play it safe. You've got to step out on the water. You've got to live your life in courage for God. Leaps of faith, as Hebrews talks about. Why do I always press you to go on mission trips? Come on, go on mission trips. We get up here, no, 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 no. Look at the great mission trips. Change your family. Why am I doing it? Because I want to stretch you out of, outside of comfort. Because when you get outside of comfort, you don't, you don't come apathetic. But apathy is a result of just... And so, I church. And I meet so many of you guys in the foyer. I'm like, come on, bro. Connect with a small Why do you think I'm begging you to lead a small group? Because it stretches you past what's easy. It ain't easy about leading other people, trying to follow up people. Like, look, I, that guy, you know, that guy knows more of the Bible than I do. Why am I the leader? That guy's a jerk. Why do I want him in my house? Well, I don't, that girl don't even follow up on a text message. I texted 25 times. She talked about she wanted Jesus when the pastor was standing there, wanted to be in my small group. Then now she don't even want to have a moment of my, whatever, I ain't good enough, or whatever. It ain't nothing easy about it. But easy... Easy creates apathy. So all throughout Scripture, Jesus is like, come up here. Come up here. And as your pastor, I'm going to give an account on that day. And I'm going to say, Jesus, I tried. I, I gave missions trips every summer. I begged them. Pleaded, let out. Went on myself. Small group. I led a small group. I tried, Jesus. I tried. And I promise you, those of you that will be caught off guard, it's because you never stepped outside of what was easy in the things of God. Here's a third big life lesson. So again, Jesus is talking about wars and rumors of wars, a taking away, hardship, all these things that he's talking about the end times. But he's in all of that, he's trying to get a life lesson into us. And his first one was, they're going to try to deceive you. Don't be deceived. The second thing he was trying to tell us all throughout this, he goes, look like in the days of Noah, they're going to be apathetic. Don't be apathetic. Don't let that happen. And here's the third thing he, tries to, he teaches us, and that is keep watch. Keep watch. Look what he says in verse 42. We'll review it again because our key verse is right in here. It says, therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So... You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus is saying, listen, you got to be ready. Uh, one of our great leaders after the first service came to me and she says, you know, at our house we always say it like this. You want to live ready instead of getting ready. I thought, ooh, that's powerful. She goes, live ready instead of getting ready. Like I want to get ready. Oh, no, 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 I'm already living ready. I thought that was pretty cool. And Jesus connects this, and this is the reason why I use the, the verbiage a thief in the night for the series, because in all four, of these, uh, all four of these places in the New Testament where he's talking about the end times, they use in some type of context a thief in the night. So I, I kind of made it as our banner statement. And here, he talks about a thief in the night. He says that the guy who owned the house knew when the robber was coming, he would have made ready for that robber. I'm going to tell you, what would he have done? He'd have called all his friends and say, listen, there's a dude with his gang showing up to rob my house. I need all of y'all up in here. Bring your machine gun, bring your hatchet, machete, whatever. Get up in here. We're going to be hiding out here. I mean, come on. It'd be like, it'd be like home alone. We're going to attach electrical cords to all the doorknobs, paint cans. Come on. Isn't that what you would have done? I, I don't know about you, but, but I have been robbed. Anybody ever been robbed? Let, let me just help you guys. So I moved from Louisiana to Dallas almost 20 years ago. 
and uh, to, actually to Arlington, Texas. And uh, we came from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which was the third most violent city per capita in the United States. So, so we were used to, you know, you just, you just knew you were going to get robbed at some point. I moved to Cedar, I, excuse me, I moved to Arlington when I first moved here, and it was supposed to be like this place of wonder. All the houses were new. They didn't flood. They had no hurricanes. They had no black mold that we knew of at the time. It was magnificent. The, the police chief was the highest paid police chief in the United States. He had this cool neighborhood watch program that kept everyone safe. We were youth ministers at the time. And I'll never forget the morning I went out to go up to the church around, I don't know, 8 o'clock or so. And uh, Jamie kind of slipped in. And I go out and her minivan's not in our driveway. So I go back inside. I said, hey, babe, um, where's your minivan? She goes, in the driveway next to your car. I was like, mm, no, it's not. It's not there. I said, did you park it somewhere down the street or something? We were always having a small group at our house. All the youth leaders were there just the night before even. So I was like, did you loan it to one of the kids? Your minivan's not there. She goes, no, it's here. Here, look. Here's my keys right here. I was like, yeah, it's not there. Then it hit me. Mm-hmm. Them suckers have messed with my ma- Those youth in my youth group are playing a trick on us. I know what they did. The spare key. Where's the spare key at, baby? Oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they took it and they parked it down the street. They trying to play a trick on it. Uh-huh. So then I came up with a plan. I'm going to call the weakest of all the fellas. So that person will rat them out. I knew a couple people. Not, don't call Jonathan Pena. He ain't going to tell the truth. Don't call him. He going to play out. What? I don't know what you're talking about. I know who I'm going to call. I'm going to call Brock because Brock is sincere and he's a real Christian. That's who I'm going to call. So I call Brock. Brock answers the phone again, 8 o'clock in the morning on a school day. And he, hey, Pastor Adam, I said, Brock, I'm going to give you three seconds to tell the truth before I kill you. And he's like, I'm sorry, what? Brock, I know that you and some of the youth leaders took our minivan and hid it somewhere, and I want to know where it's at. Then he goes, Pastor Adam, I don't know anything about it. Brock, let me just explain something to you, son. If you ever want to come back to our church, ever, now's your moment to tell the truth. Pastor Adam, he's crying. He's a senior in high school. I did do it, bro. I don't know nothing about it. Well, Brock, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three minutes to call the other idiots and find out which one of them did it. And then bring my keys and bring my van back to my driveway right now. Three minutes, you're on the clock, go, hang up the phone. About that time, my wife goes, I found the spare keys, they're right here. I'm like, oh, snap. And it's in that moment that it hit me. We've been robbed! <laughs> I mean, it, is, it is a freaky moment. If you've never been robbed, it is, when it hits you, like, and I go out in the driveway and there's busted glass, I was like, no! We've been robbed. My wife goes, um, and I also, I left my purse in there. With all the credit cards? Yes. I like, you got it. So 911, I'm calling. I get the Arlington police on the phone. I said, listen, get over here quick. It, it had to be just like within the last five hours. Someone broke and stole our minivan. It's gone. And uh, yes, sir, uh, we'll have someone over there shortly. 8 o'clock turns to 9 o'clock. No Arlington police officer. Till 11 o'clock. To noon, I've had to call in and say, I can't come to work. I'm waiting on the police. Three o'clock, that dude rolls up, gets out of the car. <laughs> it's like, you all right, bro? <laughs> you look like you're about to have a heart attack. 
<sighs> He's got these little cut-off shorts. I don't know what he was. He said, all right, I'm here to file a report. Tell me what happened. They stole my mini. Now, by this point, you got to understand, my wife, I would never cheat on her. Because what that girl can do online is creepy. She, I'm telling you, she, oh my, she would make a camera turn on some kind of way on the, on the road that I was on and know where I was. I'm just telling you. So by that point, she'd already tracked down. They had already spent money on our credit cards. At, at 2 o'clock in the morning, they filled the car up with gas because my wife won't ever put gas in the car. Then they spend a thousand dollars at Walmart at two o'clock in the morning. What they buying at Walmart for a thousand dollars? What's the what the person at the register like, sir? Do you really need that leather couch? Yeah, I gotta have it. I gotta have it. In the middle of the night, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I need. Can you imagine? I don't know what they bought. Anyway, and so she's got it. They got to be on camera at the Walmart and at the gas station. We're telling, them, listen, all you gotta do is pull the footage. In fact, if you don't mind, I'll go over to racetrack and pull the footage. I just need that badge for a second, and I just need to be able to get that footage. And he's like, well, we can't do that. And after about ten minutes, he's like, okay, well, I'm gonna file the report. I'm like. Listen to me. Have you never watched To Catch a Predator? Listen, we can get this guy. Listen, I'm telling you, pull the footage. We'll see what he looks like. I'll drive through the neighborhoods till I see him. We will get this guy, our group of guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he drove off, I knew good and well, that was the end of that. That'll never happen. So then I started plotting. They're going to try to come back and get my other car. In fact, I'm going to bait them in. <laughs> And we, our, our house had a second story, and there was a room on the top of that second story that overlooked our driveway. I promise you, God is my witness, Miss Jamie is my witness. For the next five nights or so, I slept, not in my master bedroom with my wife. And I'm a good Cajun boy, so you've got to understand, I have weaponry. And so, I slept with the window open and the screen off, <laughs> overlooking my driveway, with my shotgun for five nights. I left the windows down in the car. I left the keys on the dashboard where they could see it. I put a stake on the front seat, smoldering hot, with $100,000. No, I didn't, but I wanted to. <laughs> on the back. And I'm waiting because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bless them in Jesus' name. That's what I'm going to do. When you've been robbed, come on, you know what I'm talking about. It does something to you. And from that point forward, we never bought another house that there wasn't a locked garage that I could put my cars in. I, I, every day, even today, like I would lock my wife. It, it's, it's 9 o'clock at night, and I'll go find her keys and lock her door because I know her purse is in there, and the doors are unlocked on her car. And I mean, to this day, it affected me. Because why? Because I'd been robbed. Jesus says, listen, keep watch. It's going to happen. I don't even know when it's going to happen. The only one who knows is, is Father, Father Daddy. He, he's the only one who knows. The angels don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. And when you hear these preachers talking, it's going to happen on September th- 23rd. It's going to happen. See, you can see the eschatology with the blood moons, with the such and such and feast, and the such and such. And I read this in the, in the Hebrew and the Greek. That's great. You're an idiot because nobody knows, not even Jesus. So shut up. Let's read your talent. Shut up. Because you're wrong. Jesus says, keep watch. The attitude of what he's trying to teach us is that, friend, you and I have to live ready, not hope to get ready at the last second. I know he's going to come at some point, but I'm not really ready. I'm telling you right now, if Jesus came back today, I'm ready. Do I have some regrets? Yes, I wish I'd have done some things better. But I'm ready. Let's go. I've lived my life to the best I could for his glory. I have any shame, any, any, any regret. 
I mean, guilt, excuse me, I have regrets. I wish I had won more people to Jesus. I wish I'd have been more obedient with, when he told me to pray for that lady in, at the mall and I didn't. I wish, I, I, those, absolutely. But I'm not living in fear of his return. Let's do this. In fact, I told him the other day, I'm good, man. Let's go. I'm kind of tired. Let's go into heaven. I'm, re- <laughs> I'm ready. Let's roll. Do you live like that? Are you living ready? Or do you have some things you would make major changes on? Friend, I'll tell you right now. Live ready. Where we're from in Louisiana, many men work on the oil rigs that are out in the Gulf. And they'll work two weeks on, a week off. So they're away from their family 24 hours a day for two weeks, not seeing their children and not seeing their spouses. And then what will happen is, you know, they'll, they'll, um, they'll either helicopter back in uh, for their week break or they'll, they'll bring them in on a boat or something like that. The story goes that a group of men had been out on the rigs for a couple weeks and they were coming in and as they, as they came in off the rigs and the boats landed there at the dock, multiple of the guys that were there, their wives were there with the kids waiting on them, waiting on them, embracing them, kissing them. But this one guy gets in his car, his wife's not there and he calls he says, uh, hey, babe, where are you? She goes, oh, I'm at home. I'm waiting for you. He goes, yeah, but the other wives are watching for their husbands. The difference in waiting and watching has everything to do about attitude and everything to do about relationship. She was waiting for a phone call because what she was doing was more important than him coming back. The relationship somehow had a brokenness. When we come back next week, we'll talk about the security of the relationship and how to secure that a little bit better. Well, friend, I don't know about you, but I want to live my life ready. I want to watch. I don't want to wait. I want to watch for his return. I'm hopeful for his return. I'm grateful. If it happens in my lifetime, wonderful. If it doesn't, wonderful, because I'm ready.